Well, good morning and welcome to King's Cross. It's good to be with you. Yeah, you can say good morning. Good morning. Excellent. Good to see you. Good to be with you this morning uh, and con- to continue our study in the book of Exodus. Let me pray one more time and ask for the Lord's help. Father, you're good. You reveal yourself to us by your spirit, through your word, and climactically in the person and work of Christ. So would you now even reveal more of yourself to us? Help us to know you. Help us to love you. Help us to believe you. Help us who are prideful to be broken and humble and repentant. Help those who are discouraged to be encouraged and built up. Help those who are in bondage to sin to be set free from the bondage of sin. Help those who are bowing to idols see the folly therein. See your beautiful character and trust in your holy name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God indeed is a God who makes himself known. God is a God who reveals himself to those who seek him by faith. However, that doesn't mean that we understand everything there is to understand about our God. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 begins by saying, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. This makes logical sense. It should make logical sense to us for our God is infinite and we are finite. He is creator, we are created. He is holy, we are sinful. He is perfect, we are imperfect. He is sovereign and we are subjects. This means that there will be aspects of God, his character, his attributes, his action, that will contain some element of mystery to us. Therefore, we should expect some complexities and questions that require we entrust what we do not understand to the God who understands all things. Christianity itself is loaded with glorious mysteries. Glorious mysteries that have been unveiled enough that we can know, trust, and obey, and even enjoy the one true God. But we never arrive at enough knowledge such that we have God entirely figured out. We must be comfortable with the secret things belonging to the Lord. If we're to be faithful to him as he's revealed himself in his word. Consider just a few mysteries of the Christian faith and how our minds begin to explode as we try to wrap them around this infinite God. He is at once transcendent and imminent. He is transcendent. He transcends time and space as we know them. He exists outside of everything we know to exist. He's eternal and unchanging in his transcendence, and yet he is imminent. That is, he's near and active. So he exists outside of time and space, and yet he's imminent. He enters and deals with things that exist inside time and space, though he's not confined by time and space. How does that work? (laughs) He is in eternity, past, present, and future all at once. Why? Well, because he's not confined by the at once of that sentence. (laughs) He exists outside of all that. And yet, he was present with Adam and Eve in the garden, with Moses on the mountain, with Israel through the pillar of cloud and fire and the tabernacle and in the temple and climactically in the incarnation of Christ. And now by his spirit indwelling his people, he is imminent. Consider his divine sovereignty and yet human responsibility. He is totally sovereign over all things, and yet we are no doubt responsible for our actions. He is totally in control, and yet we are not mere puppets on a string. How does that work? How about the hypostatic union? That Jesus in his incarnation was truly God and truly man. 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50, but truly and totally God and truly and totally man. How did his humanity and divinity work together in such a way that he was tempted as we are and yet without sin? How was he confined by time and space and yet sovereign over time and space? 
Or how about our, the tension and topic revealed in our text today? How is a holy God both just and merciful to sinful human beings? How can he be both just and the justifier, as the Apostle Paul puts it? How can he pour out his wrath and yet distribute his mercy to sinners who rebel against him with such wickedness as we saw last time in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf? And what if even after this study today, we can't quite get our heads around the mystery of it all? Well, the good news again is Deuteronomy 29, 29 assures us that God has revealed enough of himself, enough of the secret things about his infinite character and work that we can trust and obey him. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Today, as we study Exodus 33 and 34, I want you to feel the tension of God's holy mercy, our sinfulness, and understanding he, got it, he, he is just and merciful. I want you to feel that tension. I don't want you to ignore it. I don't want you to try to immediately explain it away. I want you to feel it. If we're going to know the God who's revealed himself in his word, we're going to know him as just and merciful. And we're going to understand this is not in competition with one another. This is the essence of his character and his goodness. The main point this morning, we must rely on God's holy mercy to experience God's holy presence as we journey to the promised land. We must rely on God's holy mercy to experience God's holy presence as we journey to the promised land. It is up to God if we were to have God's presence with us. We must rely on God to have God. We must be totally reliant on his holy mercy to be with sinners like us. So if you, do you want to have his holy presence? Well, then you must entrust yourself to his holy mercy. Let me just give you context and remind you of where we are, where we ended last week. While Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving instructions for Israel and how they were to construct the tabernacle and put the furniture in it, how the priests were to be dressed, how they were to have appropriate worship and be with Yahweh, his presence in their midst, in the midst of them, among the nations that he's getting glory by transforming this people. If that was going to happen, there were certain things that had to be situated and set up. Forty days, Moses is receiving these instructions and at the base of the mountain, Israel gets impatient and says, Moses is taking too long. Who knows what's happened to him? They form a golden calf, and they worship this golden calf, make sacrifices to it, and say, you lead us to the promised land. You're the one who delivered us from captivity. Moses comes down the mountain, confronted by their idolatry, confronts their idolatry, pleads with the Lord not to destroy the people, but instead to forgive their iniquity. God relented of the disaster, but his justice was on display as 3,000 were slain, and a plague was sent forth upon his people. And that's where we pick up with that tension. So about a million and a half, two million people, 3,000 have already been executed. Justice has come, but mercy has been displayed to the rest of his people. So first, I just want to break this sermon up into two parts. Number one, feel the tension. Our holy God and his idolatrous people. Feel the tension. Our holy God and his idolatrous people. Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. So notice first Yahweh's merciful justice. 
they can go to the promised land. He's not going to destroy them all. That's mercy. But he says, but I'm not going to go up with you. And at first you might think, oh, that's justice. No, no, no. That's also mercy. Because what did he say? I will not go with you lest I consume you. Like, don't forget he's holy. And holiness in sinful people is a problem. (laughs) And so he says, no, no. You go up to the promised land, but I will not go up with you lest my holiness consume you in your idolatry. Yahweh instructs Moses to take the people that he brought out of Egypt to the land he swore to the patriarch's offspring in Genesis chapter 7. He promises to send the angel out in front of them to drive out the pagan inhabitants of the land. He promises they'll go to a great and prosperous land flowing with milk and honey. But he threatens that he will not go up with them lest he consume them because of their rebellion against his word as stiff-necked people. Friends, idolatry has repercussions. God doesn't just turn a blind eye toward wicked sin. He doesn't merely overlook it like it didn't happen. God's just wrath is like lava flowing towards man's sinfulness. If it gets close enough, it will consume everything in its path. Brothers and sisters, friends, even non-Christian friends here, no one takes sin more seriously than God does. I promise you God takes your sin more seriously than you do. Indeed, more than all human beings do. He doesn't overlook it like it's no big deal. He's not the parent whose child is disrespectful and out of control, and yet there are never any repercussions. But notice again, his threat to go is not one immediately of justice, but of mercy, lest I consume you. It is our sinful rebellion and idolatry that separates us from God and earns his consuming wrath. He mercifully lets them know their idolatry has threatened their very, his very presence among them. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, their sins separated them from God. They were kicked out of the garden, separated from him because of his holiness and their sinfulness. The people feel the tension as a direct result of our idolatry against their creator and redeemer. Do you? Are you comfortable with your sin? Or do you understand the gravity of sinning against a holy God? Israel feels this tension. Look at verse 4. When the people heard the disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So notice we see here Israel now is repentant. They take their jewelry off. They understand and know Yahweh is speaking to us. But notice what it says. When the people heard this disastrous word. At this point, they realize, wait a minute, no, no, our sin, our idolatry has messed up our relationship with God. The very covenant that he's promised to the patriarchs, that is threatened. Now suddenly, our fellowship, he was going to be in our midst, in the tabernacle. Suddenly, that's in question. And they, this to them is a disastrous word. They stripped themselves of their jewelry from Horeb onward. They obeyed. They were repentant. But they heard this as a disastrous word. But think about this for just a minute. Didn't he say he would send an angel? That he would take them to the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey? Wasn't that everything they said they wanted when they made the golden calf? You're the one who brought us out. You'll take us to the land. We don't want to wait anymore. We want to get to the land. But at this point, Yahweh is saying, I'm going to send you to the land. I'll send an angel to make sure you get to the land. But when you get to that land, I'm not there. And they hear this as a disastrous word. I wonder if God showed up today to churches all over the country right now to Christians all over the world right now and said, I'm going to go ahead and bring heaven to earth, streets of gold, structures of beauty that you cannot imagine, but I won't be there. How many would sign up? 
Would you? Would you go to heaven without God? If you could get all the blessings of the promised land minus the one who promised it, would you say, I want that? Friends, God's presence with you, even in a broken world like ours, is better than heaven without him. His presence with you, even in brokenness, is better than heaven without him. That's what Israel sees in this moment. This is a disastrous word if we get the promised land and not Yahweh. This is a disaster if we get everything we've ever wanted but don't have God. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, perhaps you have a fragile heart because you have so little experience of the presence of God. King David models the same elements of brokenness and repentance after his wickedness of, of, of adultery and murder. And what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So Israel knows this is a disaster if Yahweh will not be with us. Moses would meet with God then in the tent of meeting. Now this is not the tabernacle. It hasn't been built yet. But I want you to notice as we read through these next few verses how you can almost feel Israel's tension as they look and watch Moses go commune and talk and intercede on their behalf. And it's almost they're looking like, what's going to happen? Is he really going to send us to the promised land and refuse to go? Like, have we really lost a chance to be his people? Listen and watch the tension build, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, not in their midst, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each one would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his door. Do you see it? Do you see them looking? What's going to happen? Moses is talking to him. Is he going to let us? Is he going to go with us? What's going to happen? So let's just bow and worship. Let's watch. He's there. The clouds descended there, looking, anticipating, wondering, will we have his presence? Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So again, notice the tent of meeting is far off. God's relational distance is felt. The tabernacle was supposed to be in their midst. This tent of meeting is far off. They're supposed to be dwelling with him, him in their midst, right in the middle of the people, right in the middle of the camp. Instead, he's far outside the camp. Imagine how this reminded them of their sin and their shame, their guilt and their idolatry. They wanted idols that they could make with their own hands more than they wanted their creator and redeemer. Non-Christian friend, again, I ask you, do you see that sin separates us from a holy God? Rebelling against God's will is no small matter. Christian, I even ask you, do you grieve your sin and rebellion against God like Israel did here or like David did in Psalm 51? Or again, do you think it's not a big deal? And even though you are redeemed as a believer in Christ and your eternity is not threatened, if you're in Christ, you will reach the promised land. So your union to Christ is always safe because of the finished work of Christ. But your communion with him, your intimacy, your experience relationally of that which is eternally true can be messed up by your sin. It can feel like he's a million miles away, though that's not true for those who are in Christ. Your friendship with God is forever one with you through faith in Christ, but your present fellowship with him can be grieved. 
Like adultery, a spouse may choose to forgive and work through it, but the communion takes a long time to get back to the joy it once was. Israel feels this tension, this distance. Will a holy God dwell with these redeemed but idolatrous people? They really do not deserve Yahweh to go with them. Will he send them to the promised land, yet abandon them from his presence? Let us peer in now and listen in the tent of meeting as Moses intercedes and speaks with Yahweh himself. The third time he's interceded now in these chapters on Israel's behalf. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that is Yahweh, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses goes and pleads with the Lord as the mediator. And notice why and how he pleads. So first he pleads on his own personal favor. Remember, again, in, in God is experiencing and dis, uh, demonstrating his justice last week we saw. He's like, no, no, I'm going to consume Israel and I'll build and I'll keep my promises through you. And Moses, again, identifies with the glory of Yahweh among the nations. He says, no, remember your promises. Remember you purchased and redeemed this people. Remember your glory among the nations. So Moses saying, no, no, identify you are worthy of your glory and you purchased this people for your glory. Don't abandon your covenant. And the Lord did it. And at this point now, Moses is doing the same. You've told me I have favor with you, but don't forget your people. So he's this mediator who's demonstrating this allegiance both to Yahweh and Yahweh's glory and the good of Israel, the people. And this is why he highlights that. He's demonstrating his commitment. This is what a good mediator does. He's committed to both parties communicating and coming together. And God himself has called Moses and prepared him to be this very mediator. This is the mercy of God on display through his chosen mediator. But I also want you to notice the presence of God with his people is what distinguishes his people. This is what Moses says to him. Is not your going with us so that we're distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? And we need to think about this even as Christians today on this side of the covenant, this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God's presence with us is what makes us distinct. And again, it's not in mere brick and stone mortar in a tabernacle. By the Spirit of Christ now indwelling us, we are the tabernacle of God. His presence with us among the nations, within us as Christians, as followers, as we have His Holy Spirit. But what we need to see here is we do not control Him. He controls us. He is not dependent on us. We are dependent on Him. Do you see how this puts everything on the Lord? We are literally at His mercy. We're at the mercy of God. If he doesn't want his presence to be with us, there's nothing we can do. He must give us his presence. We're completely at his mercy. Again, one of the greatest threats I see to the church today is the temptation to try to do church without desperation for the presence of God. Instead of prayer and fasting and humility and desperation, we often see performance self-reliance, pride, and casualness before a holy God. Instead of trusting the Holy Spirit to work through the Word, we often trust in programming and entertaining and delivering a product that people want rather than pointing to the presence of the God that they need. 
How many churches, how many Christians do you know and watch and observe and see true brokenness and true repentance and true desperation for God? True regret and hatred of the idolatry within, not the idolatry without. Everybody gets mad at somebody else's idols. Are you broken over your own? We can do nothing but cast ourselves on the mercy of God. God, we want your presence. We can't manufacture it. We can't force it. We can't control you. You are in control. You are sovereign. You are good. We need you. And friends, just to be clear, we can do nothing to earn our way back into his good grace. Not even our brokenness or our desperation or our repentance in and of itself earns his presence. So don't now take this and say, oh, I've got to beat myself up real bad to make sure I can get back in his presence. You're still missing the point. <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing you can do, even feel bad about your sin, can get you back in his presence. Only his mercy. Only his mercy. Only his holy mercy. His just mercy. These things must come together. They are in him and his essence. And this is the God we need to have his presence. And again, notice Yahweh mercifully agrees. Verse 14, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. What a good God. What a response to the wickedness that we've just seen in 13. We'll see it again in chapter 34 in just a second. Look at this God. Moses mediates on their behalf. They just spent their time at the bottom of the mountain like utterly rebellion and being wicked against God. And now he says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Work all you want in your idolatry and rebellion. I'm the kind of God who gives rest. The very thing you've spoken I will do for you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. But how? How will he go with them and not consume them? Again, you feel the tension. Wait, 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 but, but his holiness might consume them. But he said, like, how do you feel the tension of God's holiness and man's sinfulness? Moses presses for confirmation. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I'll make, Yahweh, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, and my face shall not be seen. Moses pleads, Show me your glory. Spurgeon says, Why, this is the greatest petition man has ever asked God. Show me your glory. Moses has already beheld the glory of God, the burning bush, remember? He's all, God, Yahweh's already revealed his covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. He's already revealed this name. He's already beheld that glory in the burning bush. He saw it through the plagues. He witnessed it in Israel's deliverance through the Red Sea. He observed it when the 70 elders back in chapter 24 when the covenant was ratified. And he asked to see it again. I want you to know Moses is not here merely looking for some personal experience. So it's not like Moses at this moment is like, uh-oh, okay, I got God on my side. Let's see what else I can get. <laughs> Like, okay, God, show me your glory. No, no, no. He wants full restoration for Israel. No, no, you've shown us your glory. We broke the covenant. You're now, I'm now pleading with you. Let's not just, not just forgiveness, but I want right relationship. I want us back to where we were. I want to see your glory. God says he'll show him his goodness. And he says, I'll pass by and you'll see my glory. God's glory is revealed in his goodness. His goodness reveals his glory. 
A Wesleyan pastor friend of mine once in kind of debating and talking to me about theology and uh, kind of uh, reformed theology and Wesleyan theology and all this. He said, no, no, Wesleyan, see, we, we approach God and we think at foundation he's a God of love. You guys think it's primarily about God's glory. I say you're making enemies out of friends. No, 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 no. God reveals his glory through his goodness, his love. His love is revealed and that gives him glory. Don't you dare make enemies out of friends. He's showing and demonstrating, no, 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 you're going to see my love, and it's going to give me great glory. I'm going to give my love to those who do not deserve it, and in giving my love to those who do not deserve it, I get the greatest glory. Yahweh agrees and promises to reveal his goodness and his sovereign power, but still yet notice evidence of the tension. His mercy will go to whoever it goes to. His sovereignty will go and flex on however it wants to do. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And Moses can't see him. Even Moses, the special mediator, the one who has particular favor with God, you cannot see his face and live. Why? Because you're sinful and he's holy. The tension is still there. It's not erased, even for Moses. No, no, I'll give mercy to who I'll give mercy. I will reveal my glory. You cannot see me. You'll die. I'll let you see the backside of my glory, just a little bit of it, so that you understand who I am. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9 to argue for God's sovereignty and salvation. Again, we see the tension. God is absolutely sovereign and humans are unquestionably responsible. Who and how that works out? Well, the secret things belong to the Lord. You must trust him. But what we can clearly see is mercy and judgment are not enemies. Mercy and justice are not enemies. They are flowing from the very character of the exact same God. But the tension remains. You can't see me and live. Yet my glory will pass by. Mercy, justice, judgment. Second half of the sermon. We must depend on God's resolution of the tension, Yahweh's holy mercy. So I want you to feel the tension and then depend on God's resolution of the tension, Yahweh's holy mercy. Chapter 34, again, verse 1 through 4, Yahweh invites Moses back up the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. He took in his hand two tablets of stone. So just as before, Moses commanded to come up alone to meet with God on top of Sinai. He's to bring the tablets, and Yahweh again will give his law, that which again, he redeemed them, he rescued them out of bondage, and he rescued them for new life. So remember, the law is to guide them into that new life. It's to guide them into the blessing of being his people. This is how they live out that new life. And he says, come back up the mountain, I'm going to give you my law again, I'm going to write it again on tablets. And just as before, as Moses comes up the mountain, Yahweh has to come down to meet him. And again, don't miss this language. God is so much bigger than us. He's so much higher than us. So Moses has to go up to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh has to come down to meet him there. So we see in verse 5, Yahweh comes back down and reveals his utter uniqueness. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This covenant name, this name Yahweh or Jehovah, again, first revealed in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush. This name that means I am that I am, or I will be who I will be, or what I will be. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. God relies on no one or nothing else for anything else. He has all power. He exists in and of himself eternally as this God. He is who he is. And he says, I am revealing this name. 
Moses asked to see his glory, and notice what Yahweh does. Moses says, let me see your glory. Yahweh says, let me preach a sermon. <laughs> let me see your glory. Let me preach to you who I am. Yahweh proclaimed his name, revealed his character. You want to see the glory of God? You need to hear his word about his holy mercy. You want to see? Then you need to hear. You want a vision of God? You need to hear his word about his merciful holiness. What does God say about himself? Now listen, these are some of the most important verses in all of Holy Scripture. The longest description God gives of his own character in just a couple of verses. So the, again, re remember the tension. The secret things belong to the Lord, but he's revealed enough for us to know, to know him, to love him, to trust him, to obey him. So what does he reveal to us about himself? Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or again, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What do we learn about Yahweh? What does he reveal about his character, about his essence? First, he is merciful or compassionate. His justice doesn't mean he lacks compassion. All too often people read the Bible and assume the God of the Old Testament is the one full of wrath and justice and the God of the New Testament is the one full of grace and mercy. No, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are one and the same and he's compassionate in both. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 103 verse 13? As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. What about the New Testament? Christ looking upon the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Guilty, idolatrous sinners need a God who is compassionate. The Lord, the Lord is merciful. He is compassionate. He has compassion for sinners. Not only is he merciful, but also notice he is gracious. So not only does he feel compassion for rebels like us and so not crush us, he's gracious. So he bestows favor on those who do not deserve it. So he's compassionate so he doesn't crush us like we deserve. But he doesn't just leave us at neutral. He said, no, no, I'm not just going to erase the bad and bring you back to neutral. I'm going to erase the bad, compassion, bring you back to neutral, and then I'm going to bestow favor you don't deserve on you. That's gracious. I'm going to take you out of bad ways in a relationship with me, not just to neutral, but I'm going to bestow my favor upon you. Like I'm going to clear your debt, and I'm going to fill you up with the righteousness ultimately of Christ. Now I'm preaching gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of myself, but I'm going to fill that up. Like this is our God. He's compassionate and gracious. Like you got to understand who he is. <laughs> He's better than you think. He's more compassionate than you think. He's more gracious than you think. And that's good news because you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. We need a God who's compassionate and gracious. And this grace is not earned. It's freely given. God's presence is not deserved. No one deserves, no sinner deserves to be in the presence of God. And therefore, if we have it, it's a gift of his compassion and his grace. Also notice he's slow to anger. If you're a compassionate God, a merciful God, and a gracious God, that means you're slow to anger. He doesn't have a quick trigger. God is not a God who flies off the handle out of control with those who rebel against him. 
turn and spit in his face. That's not the kind of God he is. He was patient with Israel's murmuring, their rebellion, their stiff-necked idolatry. Christ was patient even on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They know what they, not what they do. And friends, he's patient with you, even as your sanctification moves along so much slower than you often wish. He's so patient. He's so compassionate. So gracious. Next notice, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he is just rich with uh, steadfast love and faithfulness. Israel, you, me, we might be fickle in our faith, but our God is not fickle in his faithfulness. He remains faithful. He never wavers. He never, he's never thinking about cheating on you. He never thinks, I just can't take it no more. I'm so sick of them. And again, back to pornography. Again, spewing out hate. Again, lust in your heart. Again, pride in your heart. Again, turning to uh, escapism and idol. He never gets there. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If he saved you, he will keep you till you get the glory. And there's nothing that makes him waver in his commitment to you. His steadfast love and faithfulness. It can't even be contained in our minds or on the planet. Psalm 108.4. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And how can he be all of these things to stiff-necked sinners like us? Well, because he forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin. He forgives when you turn away from what is right. He forgives when you turn away from the covenant. He forgives all of your moral failures. Again, let's read Psalm 103 and now 8 through 14 to see it in its context and listen to this language. Listen to how the psalmist is drawing back to this is who Yahweh reveals himself to be. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. Keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. This description of Yahweh's character is repeated over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. God means to be known, and he means for this to come to your mind as he is known. Numbers 14, 18, 2 Chronicles 39, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 111, 4, Psalm 112, 4, Psalm 116, 5, Psalm 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, and Nahum 1, 3. Do you think God wants you to know? He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who he is. His glory is revealed in his distribution of great grace to stiff-necked people. And this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. His forgiveness on display for his people. God's character is infinitely good. God is infinitely beautiful. But did you notice the end of verse 7? The tension remains. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we've seen this language before. This is not new language to us. And just to clear up real quick, maybe misconceptions or misunderstanding. Back in the Ten Commandments, when he first gave the law to Israel that they've now broken, Exodus 20, verse 5 through 6, when talking about idolatry, what do we read? 
You should not bow down to them, idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, again, Yahweh, your Elohim, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, probably that thousands is talking about thousands of generations. So a right translation is saying, no, 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 my steadfast love and faithfulness goes to thousands of generations. But understand, those who hate me to the third, fourth generation, they're going to be raised and taught to hate me. They'll keep hating me. They'll get my justice. My faith and my grace and my favor will continue with those who fear me. Those who hate me, my justice will be poured out. So we see here the tension is resolved in part. Those who repent and re return to Yahweh are forgiven and restored. Those who hate him, who reject him, who refuse to repent will receive the justice that is deserved for trampling on the mercy of God. And again, not for the sins of their parents per se, but they'll be raised underneath parents who teach them not to trust or fear or follow or be repentant towards Yahweh and they'll receive the due punishment for their sin. God is just and merciful, merciful and just. His goodness and his character are unparalleled. Therefore, from this moment, the covenant is renewed. The people are reconciled to the one true God. We read in verse 9 and 10. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And I and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it's an awesome thing I will do with you. Yahweh restores his covenant relationship with Israel. Now, what I want to do with our, our kind of last uh, five or ten minutes here is just look at some applications that we see in the rest of chapter 34. Three specific applications in light of what we see about Yahweh's character. Application number one, we should bow in humble worship. Again, look back to verse 8 at Moses' response when Yahweh reveals himself. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When we understand the character of God rightly, when we understand our sin in light of his holy character, when we understand his great grace and mercy and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression, when we understand all of that, what's the right response? Humility. To bow in humble worship. There is no God like our God. God, Yahweh, there is no God like you who would somehow hold justice and mercy and send those forth all reconciled in one character because they're not enemies unveiled through you, even though you would save a people for your great glory and for their eternal good. So there should be this bowing and dependence upon his mercy. Friend, don't trust in anything in you. Zero trust in yourself. 100% trust in his mercy. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon God. Trust in his mercy. Trust in his resolution of our tensions. Again, the psalmist, thinking about uh, justice and mercy and how these things come together. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 85, verse 6 through 10, particularly verse 10. And it's a great thing to pray, even for the church today. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, that is your covenant love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his peoples, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that the glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What does justice and mercy meet and kiss? In the person of God's own character. 
and climactically in the cross. But again, we'll get there in a second. Second application. We should obey and apply his word. Chapter 34, verse 11 to 28. We don't have time to read it or go there. But the covenant stipulations are restored. So we studied it in chapters 21 to 24 when we looked at kind of the application, the case law that was applied to Israel and the land. So you've been given the Ten Commandments. Here's the application in this particular time and space and culture. Yahweh restores this case law as we studied again in those chapters. And James tells us what? Not to be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So we're to hear this word and we're to apply and respond and obey this word. Just because we're reconciled and saved and redeemed by grace alone doesn't mean we take that grace and do nothing. We take that grace and we respond to it by obeying. We're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It always produces in us works that brings glory and honor to the God who saved us. So we hear the word and we do the word. Now, I do want to point out one particular portion of this and, and make a specific application to our cultural moment. Read with me chapter 34, verse 12 to 17. Specifically thinking about Israel and where they've just come from. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tell down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after other gods, and make your sons whore after other gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now you see the obvious implication of the golden calf. No, no, no. Remember, I said no idols. Look at the destruction that brought. As you go into the land, no idols. Don't mix up with the other gods. And so even in this month, as, as Pastor has prayed and recon, uh, represented on one side, God, give us compassion for the LGBTQIA plus community. Like, if they would repent and believe, they can have life in God's name forever. God loves to save big, bad sinners. That's, 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 that's us. He saved us, didn't he? He loves to do that. At the same time, God, protect us and give us wisdom and truth to say, no, no, we cannot participate in the false gods of this culture. Like literally in this moment, it used to be like just tolerance. It's not tolerance anymore. It's affirmation and celebration. Celebration is an act of worship. That's a worship to a false god. We cannot worship false gods. So we have to say, no, God, help us be faithful and compassionate and kind and preach gospel to set captives free and bring them into the grace and mercy of Christ. But we have to stand boldly on truth and understand what does it look like to be the very people of God. And so in this moment, understand God has redeemed us. And so we walk truthfully. We walk graciously proclaiming truth. So we pray. And members of King's Cross, pray for wisdom. This is difficult. In your professional lives, how do you navigate these conversations at work? It's hard. So pray and ask the Spirit, God, give me wisdom. Help me understand what it's like to be faithful to you. Reach out to a pastor. We're happy to talk with you and pray with you and ask God how to help in those given moments. Lord, help us be faithful to you even in our moment. Third application we should behold the glory of God in the face of a better mediator. We should behold the glory of God in the face of a better mediator. Chapter 34, 29 to 35, we read that Moses, after interacting with Yahweh, his face would, was shining forth with glory such that he had to veil it. He'd been in the presence of God, and the presence of God was so thick on him coming around him, like, you got to cover up, Doc. Like, you can't, you're blinding us. And so he had to veil when he was communicating with them. 
So in this, we see for Israel, Moses' place as their mediator was restored along with the covenant. So the covenant's restored. Their back is his people. Moses is their mediator. So even though they rebelled and abandoned him, everything is restored and right. So for now, the tension is not felt that much. But this glory is a glory that faded. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But now in Christ, the one who is grace and truth, John 1.14, full of grace and truth, full of mercy and justice, the one who understands how to navigate every complex cultural moment, fully, perfectly gracious and truthful, steadfast love and faithfulness, meet righteousness and peace, kiss each other. Where? Where does that happen? The cross. How can God be perfectly just and merciful like no other? Look at the cross of Calvary. We'll conclude thinking about this. Jesus, when talking about going to the cross, I want you to listen how he represents peace and justice, like mercy going forth and justice going forth in John chapter 12. So he's talking about that moment. John 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And again, ultimately, all of it's about the glory of God. So he says, this hour is coming for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is he talking about? Look down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. What should I say? Deliver me from this. No, no, no. This is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. The triune Godhead working to bring forth redemption, to set captives free, to make sure God's justice is poured out, his mercy is distributed. Father, this is the reason I've came. Bring glory to your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, heard that it was said, had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the what? Judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he's demonstrating judgment will be taken care of. When? When I'm exalted on that cross. Mercy will be distributed. When? When will I draw men to myself? When I'm exalted on that cross. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross of Christ. We see this, that God is just. He will pour out his just wrath. And either Christ Jesus himself will drink it down to the last drop for you or you'll take it for all eternity. He is just, but he's the justifier. He draws all to himself who would repent and believe and say, I want that mercy, I want that God, and I'm totally dependent upon him. One commentator on these verses says, in other words, the moment when God is most completely made known in the Father and the Son is the moment when simultaneously mercy is extended and judgment is executed. If at the cross you receive all the mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience of God as Father, or you'll take on his wrath on your own. So in conclusion, that's how, at least in part, all that you need to know, justice and mercy are distributed. Anselm, the church father, said the debt was so great that while man alone owed, only God could pay it. John Stott said of this tension, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. This mystery is revealed in Christ. We may not understand it all, but we understand enough to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. Friend, place all of your faith there and nowhere else. Let's close in prayer.